Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence, as well as psychological and sexual abuse that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Miguel and Teresa Yapor held hands and looked to the sky. Any minute now, they expected their teenage daughter's plane to land. It had been over six months since Karina was smuggled out of the country by her manager, Sergio Andrade, and every moment without her had been agony. The Apores had trusted Sergio with Karina's singing career, but when allegations of sexual abuse emerged, they realized they'd left their daughter in the hands of a monster. They had never felt so horrified and ashamed. But now, at last, they would be able to see Karina again and make sure she was okay. Sergio's lawyer promised the rumors were exaggerated and that he would personally clear things up when he landed. But as plane after plane touched down with no sign of Karina, Miguel and Teresa's hopes started to crumble. With each passing hour, their hearts sank further. When the last flight arrived, the Apores burst into tears. Their daughter wasn't coming. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Last week, we discussed Mexican singer Gloria Trevi and her predatory manager, Sergio Andrade. An accomplished record producer, Sergio used his position of influence to exploit young women trying to break into the music industry. As his most successful client, Gloria recruited new victims for Sergio to abuse. This week, we'll follow Gloria's rise to stardom as Sergio tightens his hold over her career. We'll also discuss the brave young woman whose allegations expose Sergio's and Gloria's crimes to the world. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Boo berries. 
That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. In the spring of 1990, Gloria Trevi was well on her way to becoming Mexico's next superstar. The 20-year-old's debut album was a hit, and her rebellious, counterculture persona was widely popular with the country's youth. On stage, she was a force of nature, commanding, confident, and radiant. But when the lights dimmed, so did Gloria's spirit. Behind the scenes, she was a victim of psychological and sexual abuse. Her manager, 34-year-old Sergio Andrade, controlled every aspect of her personal and professional lives. He told her what to eat, what she got paid, and who she was allowed to talk to. He also expected her to sleep with him whenever he asked. Worst of all, he'd manipulated Gloria into seeing his behavior as perfectly normal. As far as she knew, that was just how show business worked. Sergio expected the same from all of his clients. By 1990, he was having sex with at least three young artists, one of whom was just barely 14 years old, Alina Hernandez. Alina was the most recent of Sergio's victims. Having been recruited by Gloria herself, she was brainwashed to believe sex and subservience were part of being a true musician. Though she'd only been around a short time, Alina had quickly become Sergio's favorite. She lacked Gloria's flair, but was much younger and more vulnerable, exactly what he desired. By preying on her shame and self-doubt, Sergio manipulated Alina into following his orders without question. He had no qualms about beating her if she disobeyed. Gloria insisted the physical abuse came from a place of love, and Alina believed that too. Sergio claimed he only wanted Alina to be perfect and that his punishments would help her improve. Before I continue with Sergio Andrade's psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. In a 2019 article about abusive behavior, psychiatrist Marcia Zerota describes the many ways perpetrators shift blame for their actions onto their victims. By framing their violence as fair punishment, abusers brainwash their targets into believing they're the cause of their own pain. The cycle of blame normalizes the behavior and prevents victims from resisting the abuse. Thanks to this kind of coercion, by mid-1990, Gloria Trevi, Aline, and Sergio's former wife, Mary Buquitas, all lived in fear of their manager. Gloria was the moneymaker, Mary served as Sergio's assistant, and Aline had become the object of his desire. The three of them were completely at his beck and call around the clock. If they refused his demands, they paid the price. Sergio routinely starved them, beat them, or forced them to sleep naked on the bathroom floor if they disobeyed. Of all the girls under his control, Gloria Trebi had the most to lose. Though she was wildly successful, 
she knew Sergio could crush her career with the snap of a finger. All she could hope was that her growing fame would keep him satisfied. A string of tours and TV performances propelled her to the top of the charts. Wanting to capitalize on her hype, Sergio decided to fast-track her second album. Though he was based in Mexico, he preferred to record new music at a studio in Los Angeles, California. Not wanting to let any of his victims out of his sight, he made plans to fly his entire entourage of captives to America, including Gloria, Mary, and Aline. At least half a dozen young women were brought along. While he planned the trip, however, Sergio discovered that Alina didn't have a passport. By promising to record her album after Gloria's was done, he convinced Alina's mother to give him legal guardianship over her 14-year-old daughter so they could travel together. At that point, Alina's mother, Josie, had no indication of the monster Sergio was. Her daughter had never said a bad word about him. On the contrary, she called him a remarkable mentor. Most importantly, Josie knew how badly Alina wanted to be a singer. She didn't want to hurt the girl's chances by refusing her manager's request. And so, barely knowing who Sergio really was, Josie granted him total legal authority over her daughter's life. It was just another step forward in Sergio's endless quest for control. He did all he could to isolate his victims from their loved ones. To prevent Alina's mother from asking too many questions, he told the teenager what to say and, more importantly, what to hide. Under no circumstances was she to tell her parents where they were staying in Los Angeles or give them the phone number to the hotel. As always, Alina did as she was told. Shortly after they arrived in California, she called home to check in. When her stepfather answered, she dodged his questions just as she and Sergio had rehearsed. Alina told him she would call home often, but kept the hotel's contact information to herself. She claimed Sergio needed her to focus and she couldn't afford any distractions, even from her own parents. When Josie heard that her daughter had refused to share the basic details of her trip, she got nervous. Unable to reach anyone at Sergio's office, she started to panic. She had little to go on, but she did remember one detail that might put her in touch with her daughter. Aline had once mentioned that Sergio used a studio in California called Milagro Sound to record Gloria's debut album. Josie called her cousin in Los Angeles, who helped her track down the business's number in a local phone book. When Josie finally made contact, she was relieved to hear that Sergio had indeed rented the space again. The helpful studio employee even knew the room number at the hotel where he was staying. It was the middle of the night, but Josie couldn't wait another second to give Sergio a piece of her mind. She clenched the phone to her ear and took a deep breath, ready to scream. But when the call was finally answered, she was stunned to hear Alina's voice on the other end of the line. By that point, it was nearly 3 a.m. There was no excuse on earth that could explain why her teenage daughter was in her manager's room that late at night. Alina stumbled through an explanation, but Josie could tell something was wrong. Determined to find out what was going on, she hung up the phone and rushed to the airport. 
When Sergio saw Josie approaching the following afternoon, he knew he had to think fast. Before she had a chance to unload on him, he cut her off with a charm offensive. He gushed about Aline's progress and how excited he was to record her first album. Aline backed him up, insisting that the call last night was just a misunderstanding. She begged her mother to leave them alone. Josie wasn't sure what to believe. She still felt like something was wrong, but had no idea what it could be. Gloria Trevi and half a dozen other girls were there, and none of them seemed distressed. Josie decided to back off for the moment, but checked into the hotel to keep an eye on her daughter for the next few days. Aline was furious. The 15-year-old knew Sergio would blame her for her mother's intrusion. The next time the two of them were alone, Sergio whipped her until his arm got sore. Aline's mind had been so twisted by the abuse that she actually blamed Josie for the punishment. The more savagely Sergio beat her, the more Aline hated her mother. Afterwards, Sergio paced around his hotel room and seethed. Aline should never have given her mother cause for concern. Now, he would have to fix it. He stopped moving for a moment and focused. Josie needed to be dealt with. If she wasn't going to leave on her own, he would have to prove there was nothing going on. More than that, he needed her to feel like a fool for interfering with his business. Aline was his, and he wouldn't give her up so easily. Over the next few days, Sergio pretended to embrace Josie's arrival. He told her she was welcome to stick around the hotel as long as she wanted. As the days wore on, Josie started to forget why she'd come in the first place. Sergio seemed so genuine and kind that she questioned her own judgment. She worried she had been too paranoid. Meanwhile, her daughter had been cold and distant to her. Gloria Trevi had even come by to assure her that everything was completely normal. She thought about how successful Sergio had made Gloria. With his coaching, Aline could be next. After two weeks, Josie felt like a nuisance. Aline seemed happy to stay with Sergio, and at the end of the day, she just wanted her daughter to be happy. She packed her bags and returned to Mexico alone, completely unaware that she had been deceived. With Josie out of the picture, there was nothing protecting Aline from Sergio's sexual abuse. Her mother's arrival had put his entire operation in jeopardy, and Sergio wasted no time reminding her the consequences of failure. When we return, Sergio Andrade escalates his abuse and redoubles his efforts to control Gloria Trevi's life. Hi, it's Vanessa from Parcast, and I'm here to tell you about my new 10-episode limited series, Obituaries. They're some of the most iconic figures of all time, celebrated in death for their individual achievements and impact on society. But in life, the relationships they kept tell a different story, one of unexpected connections that yielded extraordinary change. 
Every Wednesday on Obituaries, join my co-host Carter and me as we explore the shared legacies of prolific pairs from the past, from the mutual traumas of entertainers Marilyn Monroe and Ella Fitzgerald to the unlikely admiration between visionaries Mark Twain and Nikola Tesla. Each episode of Obituaries digs deep into the lasting impressions made between two legendary figures and how their entanglements changed the course of history. These meaningful duos may have passed on, but the profound effect they had on each other and us will live on forever. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Obituaries. Listen free only on Spotify. Now, back to the story. In the fall of 1990, 35-year-old producer Sergio Andrade and young singer Gloria Trevi were two of the most famous names in Mexico. Behind the scenes, Sergio cemented his control over Gloria by physically and sexually abusing her. Gloria felt she had no choice but to bend to Sergio's will. After recording her second album that year in Los Angeles, her star rose even higher. Sergio used her success to coerce other young women into sex in exchange for a music career, including 15-year-old Alina Hernandez. Sergio had followed through on his promise to allow Alina to record her debut album, but delayed its release. Instead, he planned a nationwide tour for Gloria and expected Alina to be one of her backup singers. It was all a petty punishment designed to get back at the teenager because her mother had come close to discovering Sergio's abuse months earlier. Considering her own album was already completed, Alina felt like she had been demoted. When she brought up the issue with Sergio, he coldly explained that if she wanted to go solo, she would have to find a replacement to perform background vocals. Until then, she was stuck. Though he framed it as a business move, Alina knew what Sergio really wanted until she recruited a new girl to fill her shoes in his abusive inner circle, her album would be held hostage. Worried that all her suffering would be for nothing if she disobeyed, Alina started to hunt for her replacement. She eventually found it in 13-year-old Marlene Calderon. Just like all the others, by mid-1991, Marlene was fully under Sergio's control, Alina's deal with the devil was complete, and her album was released. Now, she hoped, it was finally time for her to shine. But Alina was no Gloria Trevi. Though expectations were high, her album was met with mixed reviews. Sergio had no interest in mediocre projects and quickly lost interest in her career. With the writing on the wall, Alina felt herself fading away. Fortunately, the disappointment allowed the 17-year-old to see things more clearly than she had in years. It was time for her to run. A few nights later, Alina packed her things and slipped away without a word. All she left behind was a handwritten note that said, I promise I won't say anything. Sergio was too preoccupied with Gloria's career to care about Alina's disappearance. He had plenty of new girls to keep him satisfied. Gloria's stardom by itself brought in enough money to support his entire operation. 
he redirected all of his energy to his headliner. With each passing year, Gloria's fame grew. She was a phenomenon. Movie roles and a salacious pinup calendar followed. By 1994, the singer was on top of the world. The bigger she got, the wider Sergio's circle of abuse became. During her meteoric rise, Gloria drew legions of young girls towards her producer. She used her celebrity to prey on young fans, organizing dozens of phony auditions for him. Over time, the abuse was perfected into a science. While it used to take weeks or even months to brainwash his victims, Sergio soon found he could assert his control in a matter of days. Yet no matter how many girls Gloria sent his way or how famous she became, he never cut her any slack. If anything, his grip only tightened. As far as Sergio was concerned, Gloria was just another pawn. He treated her no differently than any of the other girls under his thumb, verbally and physically abusing her along with everyone else. At some point, he even banned her from speaking to anyone without his direct permission. Gloria wasn't allowed to socialize or have any personal life whatsoever. Outside of a few controlled promotional events, Mexico's biggest star was never seen in public. It was as if she ceased to exist the moment she got off stage. Eventually, Gloria's behavior became so withdrawn that people started to notice. Photographer Marita Lopez, who had worked with her for years, noticed a drastic change around 1995. In her experience, Gloria had always been fun and talkative, but by the mid-90s, she barely looked up from the floor when Sergio was nearby. He talked for them both, leaving Gloria just enough space for one or two word answers. Though she was at the height of her career, Gloria Trevi was a shell of her former self. Her behavior fits a complex pattern of oppression known as coercive control. In a 2015 article, psychologist Lisa Aronson Fontes writes that abusers seek to dominate targets by slowly stripping away their sense of self. By restricting their victims' interactions and monitoring their whereabouts, abusers can seem impossible to escape. Over time, their targets lose their will to fight back. In 1996, while her mental state was worse than ever, Gloria hit her professional peak. She had three films under her belt, outstanding album sales, and a die-hard fan base. No one would have believed that in private, Latin America's most beloved superstar was barely allowed to speak. No one was more surprised by Sergio and Gloria's dynamic than television executive Batija Boy. While trying to sign the singer to an exclusive contract, Bati attended meeting after meeting with Gloria and Sergio. In all that time, Gloria rarely spoke. Even when Bati asked her direct questions, Gloria waited for her manager's approval before saying a word. Sergio, on the other hand, never closed his mouth. With the biggest star in the country under his thumb, he knew exactly how much power he held. For months, he strung Bati along, making ridiculous demands for Gloria's contract. When Bati finally realized he would never commit, 
the deal fell through. Sergio blamed her for failing to meet his conditions, then immediately signed a deal with her rival network. He wanted to send a message that the young girls he abused knew all too well. There was a price to pay for saying no to Sergio Andrade. But Pati Chapoy was one enemy he shouldn't have made. After months of putting up with Sergio's nonsense, Pati was furious. Seeing how he treated Gloria, she revived the old rumors about Sergio's relationships with young women. While he'd been haunted by sexual abuse allegations for years, no one had ever been willing to stand up to him and make them stick. Fortunately, Pati wasn't just anyone. Before she was an executive, she'd built a career as a tenacious news investigator. In 1996, she started digging for information about Sergio's inner circle. She kept her search quiet, only involving those she could trust. It's unclear exactly how, but word of her investigation eventually found its way to Alina Hernandez. Soon afterward, the teenager paid Bati a visit and poured her heart out. For three hours, she recounted Sergio's horrific abuse in excruciating detail, with her mother corroborating every word. Bati was shocked. She had assumed Sergio was a creep, but his true crimes were worse than she could have possibly imagined. She made some calls and set Alina up with one of her trusted writers. Together, they chronicled Sergio's crimes point by point. It wasn't easy, but Alina knew how important her story was. He was a monster, and it was time the world knew. Meanwhile, Sergio continued his obsessive rise to the top of show business. He signed Gloria up to host her own variety show and seemed to have a surefire hit on his hands. But he just couldn't get out of his own way. Consumed by a bottomless need for control, Sergio bullied the entire production. He demanded all creative decisions go through him and refused to allow anyone to speak to Gloria. The star of the show wasn't even allowed to talk to the director. The crew was baffled as they watched Sergio shuffle multiple young women on and off set each morning. Everywhere Gloria went, she was surrounded by a swarm of adolescent girls. The red flags were obvious. Every one of Sergio's girls dressed alike. They were unclean and visibly malnourished. Many times, he forced them to wait outside in his SUV for hours, like animals. When they were allowed inside, crew members often found the girls scavenging for household essentials like toilet paper and feminine hygiene products. It was clear Sergio wasn't providing them with even the most basic necessities. During lunch breaks, they weren't allowed to touch food unless he gave permission. If he didn't, they wouldn't eat at all. According to one producer, one of the girls urinated on herself after Sergio refused her a bathroom break. Everyone involved was disturbed and curious, but no one could figure out what was going on. The girls were absolutely forbidden from speaking to anyone outside of their circle. Most importantly of all, they had strict instructions to keep Gloria isolated. Like a shield of young bodyguards, they kept the star separated from the crew at all times. 
Gloria's behavior was the most confusing part of it all. Despite all the difficulties on set, when the lights came on, Gloria shined. During filming, she was the energetic, charming performer her fans knew and loved. Then the second the camera cut, she shut down like a robot. Her eyes sunk to the floor. She stopped smiling and her young escorts whisked her straight back to the dressing room. As alarming as it was, not a single person objected, fearing they would be fired for speaking out. In an environment like that, failure was all but assured. Sergio quickly became impossible to work with and made enemies out of everyone. His ideas were terrible and the ratings suffered. Halfway through its first season, Gloria's show was canceled. Sergio Andrade was in a rut. First, Aline had disappeared, and now he'd lost a sure thing. He wasn't used to mistakes, and he hated how they felt. But no amount of setbacks made him question his methods. He decided he didn't need the backing of any television network. Gloria Trevi was bigger than a talk show. Their rules were too restrictive anyway. Gloria needed to be given center stage. Sergio knew what the people wanted, and he was ready to deliver. In desperate need of a win, he focused all of his energy into Gloria's seventh annual pinup calendar. The previous editions had flown off the shelves, and he was certain the 1997 issue would be the best one yet. But once again, he was painfully mistaken. Upon release, Gloria's newest calendar was met with immediate backlash. What had once been a steamy display of her modeling was now full of seemingly underage girls. Alongside Gloria, Sergio included lewd photos of his other teenage captives, assuming the public would share his perverted attraction to children. The calendar was disgusting and resulted in a massive decline in sales from the previous year. Sergio was finally shaken. Suddenly, the untouchable genius looked washed up. Worse yet, he had nobody to turn to for advice. By then, he'd alienated everyone in his life. He had no friends or colleagues. All he had left was his clan of adolescent captives. Pati Chapoy, the producer slash journalist, could tell the time to strike was coming. Over the past year, her crusade against Sergio had gradually gained momentum. She worked diligently to spread the word about his inappropriate behavior on set at the talk show. When combined with the disturbing calendar, speculation about his misconduct was more rampant than ever. Most importantly, Alina's memoir exposing his abuse was nearly finished. Soon, the entire world would know who Sergio Andrade really was. When he finally heard about Alina's upcoming book, Sergio panicked. His entire legacy was in jeopardy. With his back against the wall, he did the same thing he always did. He ran. When we return, Sergio Andrade and Gloria Trevi flee the country. Now, back to the story. In late 1997, Sergio Andrade's world started to collapse. 
The 42-year-old music producer had long eluded allegations of sexual abuse. But when one of his victims, Alina Hernandez, announced that her memoir would be published, he knew what was coming. Fearing legal backlash, he prepared to flee the country along with around a dozen young girls, including singer Gloria Trevi. Without admitting the true reasons behind his escape, Sergio needed to invent a plausible excuse for Gloria to suddenly end her national tour. He had Gloria tell her adoring fans that she was stepping away from music to help Sergio fight prostate cancer. Over the next couple of months, Sergio scrambled to acquire travel documents for his underage captives. He convinced their parents to sign off on a trip to Spain by spinning it as a training opportunity. All expenses were paid, he claimed, and their daughters would get to attend a prestigious talent academy. All the adults bought it, and by the end of 1997, Sergio moved overseas. But his problems were only just beginning. Shortly after their arrival in Spain, he learned one of the girls was pregnant. In fact, 14-year-old Karina Yapor was nearly ready to deliver. Her poor diet and lack of health education left her completely unaware she had been carrying Sergio's baby for months. On December 12, 1997, their son was born. While Karina adored her child, Sergio couldn't have cared less. He left the teenager in charge of the baby and focused his energy on avoiding detection by the authorities. As a middle-aged man living with a swarm of adolescent girls, he knew better than to stay in one place for more than a month or two. Since hotels tended to ask too many questions, he spent wads of cash on real estate. Even then, however, he was notoriously cheap when it came to basic expenses. He forced the girls to beg for money on the streets to pay for food. Not even Gloria, arguably the biggest superstar in Latin America at the time, was excused. Disguised in nothing but a hat and sunglasses, she walked the streets along with Sergio's other victims, asking strangers for pocket change. By 1998, no one had seen Gloria for months. Rumors spread that she had been kidnapped, entered rehab, or had possibly been murdered. But when Alina's book went public in April, people realized she'd fled with Sergio out of guilt. In an attempt to control the damage, Sergio, Gloria, and Mary Buquitas all returned to Mexico, leaving the rest of the girls back in Spain. For the first time in months, Gloria gave an interview to deny any wrongdoing on Sergio's behalf. It was too little too late. In addition to releasing her book, Alina filed corruption of minor charges against Sergio. While there was no warrant for his arrest yet, an investigation had begun. Sergio ran for the hills once again. This time, he made his way to South America. With a legal battle on the horizon, he looked for a country that would be less willing to extradite him if he was formally charged. He settled on Brazil. Gloria remained behind in Mexico to profess his innocence and destroy any evidence that could incriminate him. At that point, Sergio's victims were scattered across Spain and Mexico. When he raced to get the remaining captives out of Madrid, he realized he had a major problem. 
he didn't have a passport for his baby with 15-year-old Karina. Since she was still a minor, there was no way to get one without her parents being notified. Sergio told her she would have to leave her baby with some of the other girls until they found a way to get him out. In a testament to just how much control he had over her, she agreed to leave her baby behind in Spain. While Garina and the first half of the group moved to Brazil, Sergio sent Mary back to Madrid to care for the infant. As one of his oldest and most trusted accomplices, she was responsible for cleaning out his properties while watching over the newborn. But Mary had no clue how to care for her child. After a few days of neglect, the baby got sick. Terrified, Mary rushed to the hospital. In her haste, she gave the staff her real name as well as the baby's. When she tried to pick him up a few days later, she was turned away. Mary was not a parent and didn't have any paperwork to prove her guardianship. Garina's baby was now in the government's care. In October of 1998, the Mexican consulate in Madrid tracked down Garina's parents and informed them of their daughter's abandoned child. They had no idea Garina was ever even pregnant. Once the initial horror wore off, they called the police and filed kidnapping charges. This left Sergio between a rock and a hard place. He could either surrender and try to talk his way out of his problems, or he could officially become a fugitive. To buy some time, he ordered his lawyer to promise the authorities that he, Gloria, and Karina were all going to fly home to clear up the confusion. But on the day they were set to arrive, Sergio never showed. It's unclear whether he got cold feet at the last moment or if he never intended to come at all. Either way, the police had seen enough. They launched an international manhunt to capture the disgraced producer. As the walls closed in around him, Sergio frantically rushed to Brazil. Beads of sweat dripped down his neck. For the first time in his life, he was running out of answers. Every problem he solved was replaced by two more. It was exhausting. He didn't know how much longer he could keep it up. But there was too much at stake to quit. He needed to keep the girls close no matter the cost. They were the key to his survival. Fearing Gloria would be sent back to Mexico if he was captured, Sergio came up with an absurd idea. As far as he knew, Brazil did not extradite criminals if their children were natural-born citizens. To safeguard Gloria against deportation, he decided to get her pregnant. But he didn't stop there. Sergio impregnated three other girls as well, assuming they would be granted the same legal protection. He didn't realize that Brazil had already changed the law he thought he was abusing. His misunderstanding was based on a secondhand story about a case from the 1970s. Sergio was only digging his hole deeper and deeper. For the next year, he shuffled the captive girls back and forth between Rio and Sao Paulo, dodging Mexican authorities at every turn. In the fall of 1999, 
While juggling his issues with the police, his victims, and the public, Sergio's babies started to arrive. In October, Gloria welcomed a daughter into the world. Tragically, their time together would not last. Barely a month after her birth, Sergio and Gloria's baby suddenly passed away. The cause of death was never found, as Sergio refused to call the paramedics to the site. Gloria was utterly heartbroken. The stress built up until it was too much for Sergio to handle. His intricate web of lies unraveled. His only hope was to have Karina plead with her parents to drop the kidnapping charges. She begged them to leave Sergio alone, but they refused. They wouldn't even talk about dropping the charges until she was home safe. With no other options, Sergio finally conceded. On December 15, 1999, he flew 15-year-old Karina Yapor and 19-year-old Marlene Calderon back to Mexico to convince everyone the accusations all stemmed from a misunderstanding. The second they landed, police swarmed the plane and arrested Marlene for kidnapping. But when the authorities questioned Karina, she wouldn't cooperate. She denied that Sergio and Gloria had done anything wrong. Even after everything she had been through, she wouldn't turn in her abuser. Though Karina was no help to the investigation, police did learn one crucial piece of information. Since she'd flown in from Rio, they knew for sure Sergio was in Brazil. By sheer luck, some officers spotted Gloria and Mary a few weeks later as they walked in the beachside district of Copacabana. The girls gave the men fake names, but when neither could provide identification, the police threatened to arrest them. With no way out, Gloria led them back to her apartment. Sergio answered the door and surrendered without a fight. He was taken into custody along with Gloria and Mary. They spent years in a Brazilian jail to await trial. They were accused of rape, kidnapping, and corruption of minors. Unfortunately, throughout their imprisonment, Sergio's loyal accomplices adamantly denied the charges. It would take many years before either of them would admit they had been abused. Many of the other victims refused to testify as well, leading to a complicated legal quagmire. Karina even told a newspaper that she was still madly in love with Sergio and would never cooperate in a case against him. In her mind, he hadn't done anything wrong. This inability to admit to violent behavior is all too common for victims of prolonged abuse. In a 2019 article exploring the complex reasons why people stay in such relationships, therapist Darlene Lancer highlights this denial as a kind of coping mechanism. After their self-worth has been eroded, victims tend to minimize or even rationalize away their trauma as a way to keep the relationship alive. Their idea of love becomes so twisted that they would rather ignore their own pain than recognize their victimhood. It took months of therapy for Karina to understand the horrors she had endured. Her testimony helped pressure the Brazilian government to extradite her abusers, and Gloria and Mary were finally returned to Mexico to face trial. In 2004, however, 
nearly five years after their arrest, Gloria and Mary were deemed not legally responsible. They were acquitted of all charges. Gloria returned to show business soon after. Sergio's trial wouldn't come until a year later in 2005. He was convicted of rape and kidnapping and was sentenced to less than eight years. He ended up being released sometime sooner after paying an additional fine. He has kept a low profile ever since. Among the many atrocities Sergio Andrade committed, perhaps the worst was the way he conditioned victims like Gloria Trevi to perpetuate his abuse. With her help, he built a fortune by exploiting countless young girls. And though Gloria was his sidekick through it all, her legacy is far more complicated. Gloria Trevi was a victim as well as a perpetrator. She suffered greatly, but also doomed many young women to the same fate. In the years since, she has condemned Sergio Andrade and the men like him who abuse their power. Yet she has never taken responsibility for her part in his crimes. Regardless of whether she knew what she was doing or not, Gloria's fame came with a heavy price. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with another episode. For more information on Sergio Andrade and Gloria Trevi, amongst the many sources we used, we found Girl Trouble by Christopher McDougall extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Grayson Niles, with writing assistance by Terrell Wells, fact-checking by Anya Bayerly, and research by Anna Paula Shelley, Mickey Taylor, and Chelsea Wood. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Hi, it's Vanessa from Parcast. If you enjoy our in-depth profiles on historical figures and famous fates, you'll love my new limited series, Obituaries. Every Wednesday on Spotify, join me and my co-host Carter as we explore the unlikely bonds forged between two meaningful figures from the past and discover how those relationships impacted the future. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Obituaries. Listen weekly, free and only on Spotify.